Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Ooh, that was quick. Sorry. <laughs> quick because I just I just got on the line myself. Hi. Uh, welcome to uh, Thursday edition. It is Thursday, isn't it? A Thursday edition of Lynn Cullen Still Live. And uh, it's May 28th. Oh, boy. So next next I speak to you, uh, it'll be next month. Wow. Time flies when you're having fun, huh? Anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to try to be a little more upbeat than I was yesterday, although I don't know why. Nothing has has changed that made me so upset yesterday. But uh, what the heck? Um, I'm a, I feel a little disorganized at the moment, but that's okay. Let's see what I have. Oh, I know. Let me start with this because I, I keep wanting to share this with you and uh, keep sort of shoving it aside for heavier fare and heavier we don't need, right? This is about something um, that we all do. And we do it unconsciously. We do it to live. We uh, do it automatically. But what I'm going to tell you is there's a way we can do it better if we're uh, a little more conscious <laughs> of it. Uh, easier said than done. I'm talking about breathing. Uh, we do see it, right, as this passive thing. Um, we breathe in, we breathe out. But the fact is, is that how we actually breathe is important, and it's hard in uh, this time when people are telling us how we might be, uh, you know, de-stressed, how not to hear at some point somebody say something about breathing, about focusing on your breath, about slowing it down. The reality is, is that science shows that the way we breathe is direct, I mean, directly affects our, our health both both mental and and physical um, the scientists who study uh breath and breathing say that most of us don't do it right well we do it we do it, it we're we're alive it's working we're respirating but we don't do it as well as we could. We do it inadequately. And if we did it better, we'd feel better. Um, I'm going to point out that it's not easy, actually, for us to breathe right. We're not built. Evolution, which sometimes, you know, makes us better in some ways, uh, better able to survive. Also, there's some downsides to some of what evolution 
has done to our our actual physical cells. And one of the things evolution has done is over the course of us evolving, there has been um, a lot of changes to our skull, to the shape of our skull. Uh, you know, over the last 300,000 years, give or take a millennium or two, our, our mouths have shrunk, our sinuses have shrunk. Maybe that's why I sound so nasal. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons that so many of us have to have our teeth uh, straightened and or our wisdom teeth extracted, maybe that's what's made us all so darn stupid. Think about that. A lot of us are missing our wisdom teeth. Anyway, we are the only species. Seriously, this is a fact. We are the only species whose teeth <laughs> no longer fit in our mouths. Uh, they're forced to grow in crooked. There's not enough space in there. And a harder, a smaller mouth and, wait, hang on, I got to get my dog. Okay. A, um, our smaller mouths and our smaller sinuses also make it harder for us to breathe. We have the sad distinction of being the most plugged up species. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, I'm very plugged up this morning. The most plugged up species in the animal kingdom. And then, you know, as if that's not bad enough, starting around the age of 30, our, our bones um, in our chests become thinner and start to collapse inward. And we lose, because of that inward collapse, we lose about 12% of our lung capacity at, a, at an early age when we're still young. And by the time... Well, we hit fit. Oh, uh, no, hang on. I got that one wrong. By the time we hit 50, which we still like to think of as young, we've lost 12% of our, um, of our lung capacity, which forces us, you know, again, unconsciously, but to breathe faster. Now, Breathing faster is not where we want to go. We want to breathe slower and deeper. But because we do it automatically, unless you're consciously thinking of it, it's a very hard thing to do. They have found through research that it is possible to actually improve our airwaves, airways, excuse me, um, and reverse the the entropy in our lungs at any age. This is good news. For an old asthmatic like me, this is really good news. It means that if we teach ourselves to breathe properly, we can 
actually improve our lung capacity. You may have heard of that famous study, the, the Framingham study. It's a, it was a 70-year research prog, uh, uh, program uh, that focused on uh, heart disease, had uh, data from uh, thousands and thousands of subjects. And what that found was that the greatest indicator of life span in an individual was not genetics, was not diet, was not exercise. That's what we all think, right? It wasn't. The Framingham study showed that the greatest indicator of how long a person will live was lung capacity. Larger lungs equal longer lives because big lungs allow us to get more air in with fewer breaths and that saves the body from a lot of unnecessary wear and tear. That's the first step of breathing better, which is extending breath to make them a little deeper and a little longer. I have to tell you, I've been trying when I'm walking the dog, but I have to consciously think about it to, you know, breathe in, try it now. You know, you you see the way you normally breathe. It's pretty shallow. We breathe very shallowly. But if you feel your lungs expanding, and and then let the air out. Try to slow it and deepen it. Good breathing would, you know, be about six breaths a minute. And that is not like, that's not that hard to do. It is not. But it isn't how most of us normally breathe. But when we breathe like about six breaths a minute, minute after minute after minute after minute after minute, when we breathe like that, we protect our lungs from irritation, from infection. We boost circulation to our brain, to our body. The stress on our hearts relaxes. The respiratory system, the nervous systems all function better. You know, if you just right now for a few minutes consciously inhale and exhale at that pace, that's about, uh, I don't know, a count of about, you know, five or six in and out, that just in a few minutes, your blood pressure could easily drop by 10 to 15 points. So when we say that our health is directly impacted by our breath, we ain't kidding. It's that quick. So next time you hear somebody say to somebody who's like freaking out, who's angry, who's screaming, who's stressed, who's frightened, take a deep 
breath. That is exactly what we should do. Focusing on our breath can really help anxiety. It can help depression. It can help us in so many ways. Also, one more thing I just want to add. If you breathe through your mouth, that's real bad. Please try to use the nose. <laughs> um, astonishingly, uh, research has shown up to 50% of us are chronic mouth breathers. And it's been known forever that that's not the way our bodies are supposed to work. Um, There's an old, old, I mean, ancient Chinese text that says, the breath inhaled through the mouth is adverse breath. It is extremely harmful. So try not to do that. When you breathe through your mouth, you're sapping uh, your body of moisture, you're irritating the lungs, you're loosening the soft tissues at the back of your mouth. And and mouth breathing has also been linked with neurological disorders, with uh, periodontal disease, increased risk of respiratory infections. Okay, so... Ultimately, here's what I just wanted to tell you this. Breathing's important. Breathe through your nose. Breathe deeply. Breathe slower. Breathe deeper and slower. And you'll end up absorbing maybe 18% more oxygen than if you breathe through your mouth. Forget about that. So I've been wanting to tell you that. You can see why I kept sort of pushing it aside. Oh, well, why do I, you know, what? What am I doing a class on breath? It's not like you know what you're doing. But I know the right thing to do. I'm just having trouble making it, you know, uh, habitual. So, um, and there is, I got this from a book by uh, James Nestor, N-E-S-T-O-R, called breath <laughs> shockingly called breath uh the new science of a lost art and it was um just released a few days ago okay so there i finally got that in it's been sitting here uh you know getting old on my dining room table oh heavens ellen says i heard the author of the book interviewed yesterday on NPR's Fresh Air. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was fascinating on so many levels. What he said helped me understand how the breathing exercises I was taught about 20 years ago worked to ease the anxiety I was experiencing. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering yesterday, I once bought when I was on a sort of get healthier retreat i bought it this rock to hold in my hand and etched in it was the word breathe and i thought where's my breathe rock i don't know i think 
what usually happens when something like that disappears is I gave it to somebody who at the time maybe needed it more than I did. But I, I lost my breathe rock, sort of sat on my on my living room uh, coffee table so that I would see it. <laughs> not that not that after a while I, I noticed it anymore, of course. Um, yeah, so just saying. And those of you, of course, who do meditation or who do yoga, I mean, you all know that breath is where it starts. Breath. For those of you who didn't know, I just wanted you to know, okay? And, um, man, if there was ever a time when we need to take some deep breaths, yes, it's about now, don't you think? Um, oh, Lord, I have a bunch of tweets I, I found at the time I read them worthy of sharing with you. And invariably in the moment when I see something where I think, well, I got to tell, I got to tell you guys about that. They're not happy tweets and, and, and they show up on my, um, email here in front of me that just says tweet by so-and-so on Twitter. So I don't even know what these are at this point. Um, but if you don't mind, let me just clear them out and who knows, they might spur some conversation. Uh, oh, this one, I definitely wanted to let you know. Um, with what's going on in Minneapolis. Uh, if you want to do something helpful because people are being arrested there, unlike, of course, when white people, white people brandishing uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, show up at various venues, including state houses and legislatures in an attempt to intimidate uh, they don't get arrested. They don't have rubber bullets shot at them or tear gas. But if you're a black person and you take to the streets in protest, uh, the odds of you getting tear gassed, hit by a rubber bullet and or arrested, uh, I mean, obviously go up exponentially. So here is something you can do. We all know now that when you're thrown in jail because of the way our injustice system works, if you don't have money, you're stuck there because we have this system of bail. So people with money walk out of jail until a trial. People without money languish in jail. The majority of people sitting in that big, big Riverside jail we got downtown haven't been convicted of a thing, except, I guess, being poor, because they can't post their bail. So here's what I wanted to tell you. If you got a few extra bucks, 
just go to minnesotafreedomfund.org. Minnesotafreedomfund, all one word, dot org. And that is a bail fund. That is what they do. They get people out on bail. Not bail bondsmen. They just get them out on bail. And you provide the money to do that. Okay? Minnesota Freedom fund.org all one word and it might make you feel that you've done something okay that was one thing I wanted you to know oh dear this one is akin to the same thing it is a picture that somebody posted and I um, this is after a black man, you may remember this, who was autistic, um, was uh, shot by us in Florida. And um, actually, the caregiver of the guy was shot, if I'm remembering this correctly, right? Um, And someone who had an autistic son, adult autistic son, actually put up a sign in their yard, I'm looking at a picture of the sign, and also besides the sign wrote on their garage door, it painted huge letters on their garage door, and their sign said this, let me hang on here, why can't I get it all the way up, this drives me crazy, guys. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't have the whole sign here, but it says this. Big letters. Attention! Exclamation point. An autistic man lives here. He does not know what a cop is or what a gun is. And for some reason, I can't get the rest of the picture in here. Wait a minute here. And um, I think the sign goes on to say, please, please understand that he doesn't know what you're, understand what you're telling him. And by the way, he is black. Now, that a black person, a black parent, would feel the need to essentially deface their entire uh, garage door with this huge, huge sign, terrified that if they did not, their son could end up dead.
and somebody who posted the picture that I can't quite get all of right now just said this, can you imagine living in a country where this is necessary? So that was another one I wanted to share with you. Oh, God. Um, I wasn't happy. I'm afraid what, what I got here next. Oh, here's somebody who tweeted this, and it's true. I mean, it is the president <laughs> did do this. Last night, the President of the United States reposted a video in which a man in a cowboy hat begins by saying, the only Democrat is a dead Democrat. And it's barely a ripple on my timeline this morning. Nobody even responds. We have a president that tweets out the only, you know, good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Stop and think about that. Stop and think about any other holder of this office doing anything remotely like that. The horror we would feel the astonishment, the rage, the shame, the disbelief, <laughs> and we don't even blink. Oh, and here's another one. Uh, Trump has promoted um, uh, someone on his staff to be the camp his campaign chief of staff for the 2020 campaign. It's a woman. I'm blanking on her name. But this was posted because, along with her um, mugshot. Because uh, four years ago, this woman who's now going to be uh, hit Trump's campaign chief of staff uh, was arrested in Oklahoma and charged with conspiracy to violate state election laws. Just a heads up, guys. Just a heads up. Oh, there's a little more here. Uh, she was arrested and charged with conspiracy to violate state election laws. And the reason the, the prosecutors had something on her was that in a separate police raid, uh, her then-boyfriend's phone was confiscated in a cocaine bust. And it had information on it that led then to her being charged with conspiracy to violate state election laws. This is the quality of 
person that the President of the United States promotes to be his 2020 campaign chief of staff. And where's the reporting on it? There is none. Or next to none. Oh, this is going to be uh, something helpful I wanted to pass on to you. There really is a crunch. You have, the the um, absentee ballots have to be in by uh, June 2nd in order to be counted. And, you know, I'm never aware of what day it is, what the date is. I never know. And so the other day when uh, little Tony, I think it was, wrote in and said he was worried because he still hadn't gotten his ballot. He's worried he isn't going to get in on time. And I sort of poo-pooed and said, oh, I'm just filling it out to me. Well, I don't know. June 2nd is right around the corner. So this is a little information. If you are, but you have to have it. If you're worried about mailing in your ballot, you're worried it won't get there in time, you can drop it off. It requires you uh, going downtown um, between 8.30 and 4.30. And there'll be uh, also special drop-off hours Saturday and Sunday. Um, And you have to go to 542 Forbes Avenue, the county um, office building, I guess. 542 Forbes Avenue. You can drop it off. I just, I'm not giving, I feel like I'm not giving you enough information. But if you have a ballot and you're not getting there on time, like you don't get it until June 1, um, you can drop it off. Okay? Yes. uh, uh, Yeah, hang on here, guys. I see. Um, little Tony, speaking of little Tony, wants to know if I heard about the Republicans in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Yes, of course I did. And I do want to talk about it. It's amazing. Um, One of the Republican members of the House in Harrisburg, tested positive for COVID-19. He was in the state house attending committee meetings, seeing people for a good week before he got his positive diagnosis. So, uh, he was probably spreading that stuff around. He apparently um, he apparently informed the Republican leadership and warned the people that he 
had come in contact with. And a lot of them on medical, you know, advice, self-quarantined. Not a one of them, the Republicans, not a one of them informed any Democrat. Any Democrat who served on the committees with this guy. There is a um, slightly over the top, but I can understand it, uh, post, video post by a member, uh, a Democratic member, um, just enraged about this, um, putting uh, him, his family, others, other people's families at risk. He, in the course of his rant, his video rant, uh, says, I was never going to make this public, but I am now. It turns out he's at high risk because he has, he donated a kidney, something he didn't tell, make a, you know, didn't score political points for. He had recently donated a kidney to a neighbor. And um, this is the guy who's doing uh, the the rant. And... I think I have it here. I'd be willing to play some of it for you. I'm telling you, it goes on forever. But how clearly enraged and actually frightened uh, this guy is. Um, Cannot believe I can't get it up. I can't get it up. <laughs> I can't. Well, here, I, I will. I, I think I know another way I can do it because a friend sent it to me. Okay. This is a uh, representative, Brian Sims, um, who represents um, uh, a district in uh, in Philadelphia. Let me play about, if you don't mind, let me play a little of it for you, just to hear the passion, the um, and the the rage. Um, I think this is on. Um, hi, everybody. Representative Brian Sims here. I am in my office in the House of Representatives. I just walked back here from the House floor. Um, Today has been one of those kinds of days where I hope in the years uh, to come, the decades to come after I've finished serving in elected office that I I hope I'm able to sort of put out of my memory. Um, I I, I sort of don't exactly know where to begin. Um, This morning, apparently, House Democratic leadership learned that for as much as a week, perhaps longer, that House Republican leadership knew that at least one of their members had tested positive for COVID-19, that other members who had been exposed to him would eventually go on quarantine, but they didn't go on quarantine until they were done serving alongside us, especially those of us that serve on the state government committee. Um, So for those of you that 
that no, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives under our gerrymandered Republican leadership has been perhaps the most active state legislature in the entire country. And during that time period, during the entire COVID-19 crisis, the state government committee has been the place where all of these fucked up bills to pretend that, that it is safe to go back to work have been going. And every single day of this crisis, the state government committee in Pennsylvania has met so that their members could line up one after one after one and explain that it was safe to go back to work. It was safe to go back to race car driving or dog grooming or getting your hair cut. Meanwhile, what we're learning is that during that time period, they were testing positive. They were notifying one another, and they didn't notify us. Um, I just spent the better part of the last 11 weeks sitting across a room from people who would eventually test positive and decided not to tell us. They did do some kind of quarantine. They did do some kind of contact tracing. They, I guess, being Republican leadership. Russ Diamond, apparently, the, many of you know, is the person that has led the charge to open up the legislature, screaming every single day in committee about how, how we were safe and how there wasn't a risk, has apparently been quarantining himself for weeks. Of course, he didn't explain that to any of us when he was in committee, talking with us or walking up and down the aisles or bumping into us or letting us hold the door open for him. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. Okay, this guy just goes berserk. And um, others, um, in a more measured way, <laughs> have also uh, been excoriating the uh, Republicans uh, in the State House. The Washington Post had a pretty big story on it today. I wish I could say the same for the Post Gazette, the local paper. I didn't see anything. <sighs> so. Um, there's that. It's, it, it, it really is astonishing. Can you imagine? Um, there's a, a one legislator, a, a, an Asian American woman, who sent out a picture uh, taken from the floor of the of the House chamber. Um, that shows the Republican who was positive uh, near him, this diamond guy, the Republican, who has been telling all of us it's safe, who has self-quarantined for two weeks himself. And she's there sort of in between the two of them. And she said, look, here it is. And they didn't tell me. It is really astonishing. I read somewhere uh, the other day that, you know, what we've got to get through our heads is that the Republican Party is no longer a recognizable American political party or in any way, shape, or form what it had uh, been through much of its history. It is now clearly a authoritarian party, to be sure. And I would go further. I think it's a neo-fascist authoritarian party. Make no mistake. And they will protect their own 
They will not protect you. They will not protect me. They will not protect Democrats because as their leader and the president of these disunited states only recognize dead Democrats. Really something. Really something. So um, I want to note the passing of Larry Kramer. This was a guy, whenever I saw him, I thought, geez, he scares me. He was, he scares me because he was so passionate. He was so angry, understandably. Larry Kramer, he was a playwright, he was an author, he was an AIDS activist unlike any other. And he, I suspect more than anybody, um, energized AIDS activism during that, which most of us paid little attention to for years. Because it wasn't killing us. I'm assuming us, meaning gay men. Of course, we later found out that it too was an equal opportunity destroyer. But when it was thought to be something that gay men got having sex, we didn't care. Our government didn't care. There was no sense of, oh my gosh, we got to get on top of this. And this is when we actually had a relatively functional government. <laughs> relatively. Incredibly, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was then at the CDC. And Larry Kramer went at him, went at him. He called him a killer. He called Dr. Fauci a killer. He called Dr. Fauci an incompetent idiot. And probably a lot more. And I bring this up. Because I want to show how real men like Larry Kramer and Anthony Fauci grow. Because the two of them became friends. Became friends. And Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, said this, there is no question in my mind that Larry Kramer helped change medicine in this country. Now, understand, he wasn't being quoted for this obituary. Anthony Fauci said this in 2002. He said this 18 years ago, 
after being called an incompetent idiot and a liar by Larry Kramer. He didn't, like some people we know, hold on to that grievance. He listened to the grievance. He learned from the grievance. And in 2002, Dr. Fauci said this, in American medicine, there are two eras, before Larry and after Larry. Fauci said this, you know, once you got past the, the you know, rhetoric, the take no prisoners, fire-breathing rhetoric. You realize that Larry Kramer made a lot of sense and that he had a heart of gold. Larry Kramer uh, let Fauci know in the last uh, few months that he was in his corner because he saw, sees Dr. Fauci, saw Dr. Fauci being pilloried by the uh, members of the authoritarian uh, party. And uh, Larry Kramer uh, said just uh, at the end of March, I'm feeling sorry for how he's being treated. I emailed him. But his one-line answer to me was simply this, hunker down. <coughs> Larry Kramer. Um, his life was saved uh, here, I think, by Dr. Starzl uh, at Presby in Pittsburgh. Uh, where uh, he had a liver transplant um, in 2001. And it's interesting because in 2001, the Associated Press had uh, reported that he he was dead. He was almost dead, but uh, he was given new life here. And <sighs> Larry Fauci, Larry Fauci, Larry Kramer, you know, was a playwright, was a author, was um, just a man of such, as I said, passion. And he said this, I know that unless I fight with every ounce of my energy, I will hate myself. That was how he felt during the AIDS epidemic. Um, and that passion really helped force this nation, the world, all of us to wake up to the reality of the AIDS epidemic. That puts me in mind again of Tom Sokolowski who I'm sure must have known Larry Kramer, um, both working in New York at the time with passion and terror, fear. Larry Kramer was H HIV positive. 
Um, just two more things I wanted to point out about Larry Kramer. Um, he loved provocation. And uh, he, he, I, this was something from the New York Times obituary that I just love. He once introduced Mayor Koch, Ed Koch of New York, to his pet dog, his Wheaton Terrier. He said um, to the Wheaton Terrier, and this is the man who was killing daddy's friends, who is killing daddy's friends. <laughs> well, um, also this this um, he said this in 2017, Larry Kramer. I was trying to make people united and angry. I was known as the angriest man in the world. And here's what's important: mainly because I discovered that anger got you further than being nice. And when we started to break through in the media, I was better TV than someone who was nice. There it is. In a nutshell, he figured out, he figured out how to be heard in America. Not by being reasonable, not by being nice, coherent, quiet. He found out that the way you get attention and your voice heard in this country is to be angry. And look where that's gotten us. Hmm. All righty. Let's see what else I got here. Okay. Uh, wait, we got an email from Roger. Good friends of ours live in one of those old, huge, beautiful houses in a very ritzy part of Highland Park. The father is a brilliant scientist who happens to be African-American. He has had to instruct his 14-year-old son who has shot up eight inches in the past year to over six feet tall. God. To be aware of cops and to not run from them. His son actually was approached by police one evening when walking in his yard returning from a friend's house. Luckily, his father was looking out the front window and went outside at the beginning of the conversation and explained to the officer, this is my son, this is his house. Roger says, I don't know how his friend keeps his cool. I guess practice. Oh, you know, I uh, I was worried about my son um, more than once. He never told me, um, but someone else he told told me. Um, 
he is not white. Um, he's beautifully, beautifully brown. And he went to school in uh, college in West Virginia, and he got stopped by a cop while he was driving. And um, the cop actually called him the whole time, brown boy. And I feared for him because he, I guess he got stopped because his ex license plate was expired or something. I mean, I'd driven around with an expired, you know, I forget, whatever, I don't know. But if you're brown or black and you're driving and you got a tail light out, which I'm sure has happened to me too, I never got stopped for a broken tail light. Do they stop white ladies for broken tail lights? No, I don't think so. And I've been having a sort of back and forth with my son lately um, about police. Because he hates them. And he says things like, all cops are, you know. And I, I say to him, anytime you start a sentence with all and then put a collective noun after it, you're wrong. I'm sure you're wrong. I mean, and he will not budge. He has a different reality that he lives. White people see cops as helpers. Black and brown people see cops as killers. Okay. There's something else that I've, uh, another article I read that I wanted to share with you. Um, <clears throat> because now, and I, I'm hearing now the governor has said that we can, that Pennsylvania or Allegheny County can open its swimming pools. I don't think that sounds smart. And we're heading real close to getting into the green phase. Something tells me that's not smart. But who am I? We all will, on a daily basis, continue to make choices and judgments. Uh, and they will be formed by, uh, you know, in combination with our own sense of risk and harm reduction. And I know that I have ventured out a little bit more, obviously masked, uh, but I had not before. I've been in 
three stores. I mean, all, you know, to get things I needed. In one case, I didn't have to have, but I, I went. And I sort of got on myself later about that. But I also see people who I think are over the top. God bless them. I mean, they ain't going to spread this <laughs> ever. I mean, they are not venturing out at all. And um, they're not letting anyone in their families venture out. And they are really holed up. And, you know, governors can say it's yellow, it's green, and they're still going to stay. That's okay. Everybody has to do where their own comfort level is. But this is a piece that I just found somewhat helpful. And the headline was putting the risk of COVID-19 in perspective. And, um, you know, we don't often. It's like, you know, you can tell people who are afraid to get on an airplane I mean, before COVID-19, who are afraid to fly. Uh, you're safer up there than you are every time you get in your car. You're safer. You're at more risk, literally more risk, when you drive to the airport. But it doesn't, it doesn't get through, you know. But we know what certain, you know, risks are. It's riskier right now to live in New York City than it is to live in, I don't know, Pittsburgh. Well, I think. Um, there are risks to our health all around us living in Pittsburgh. The air pollution here, even though the sky can be blue, is a killer, a life shortener. Do we think about that very much? No. But there are tools that assess risk that can help all of us with this. You know, we're, we're just bombarded by these numbers now. 100,000-plus dead, uh, you know, this, that, new cases, hospitalizations, blah, 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 blah. And it's just so much now noise, but it's noise that creates anxiety, fear. Remember to breathe deeply, slowly. So the guy who wrote this, a guy named David Roberts, says, I found the best way to communicate the level of risk was to put it in terms that allowed easier comparison to other more familiar risks. Um, yeah, like what's riskier, smoking a pack of cigarettes or, uh, you know, walking the dog? So he says this, a useful way to understand risk is by comparing with what is called, and we're going to learn a new word here, a micromort. Micromort. I suppose mort meaning death. Micromort. What a micromort is, is a measure of a one in a million chance of dying. So, 
certain things are, you know, six micromorts. You got six chances in a million of dying. Would you be willing to take those odds? Would you take a single micromort? I mean, most of us would. We do all the time. Otherwise, you wouldn't ever get in a car. So uh, knowing the micromort number allows us to compare the risk of dying, for instance, from skydiving, okay, which, by the way, is seven micromorts per jump. And I suppose those odds are pretty darn, I mean, seven in a million, I'd take those odds myself, but I still ain't going to jump out of a plane. I would do something else that was seven micromorts. One in a million chance of dying. That's a micromort. Skydiving per jump is seven. Don't ask me who crunches these numbers. Here's one that freaked me. Going under general anesthesia in the United States, which, by the way, is something I have had to do countless times. I hate it so much because it's like dying. Um, I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Invariably, the last thing I say is something nasty to the anesthesiologist, which is not smart, but I hate it. And they do tell you before you go in, you have to sign a paper saying, you know, you might not come out of this. So, turns out that the micromort number for having general anesthesia in the United States is five micromorts. Okay, that's a risk I'll take and have again and again and again. I'll take it. But here's one that should give you a pause. Guess what the micromort number, one in a million chance of dying, is for giving birth in these United States. So, next time you think a skydiver is a risk taker, uh uh-uh, that pregnant woman, she's the risk taker. The skydiver is doing seven micromorts per jump. A pregnant woman in these United States, it'd be interesting to see what the micromort number is for, well, more civilized countries with better health care systems. The micromort number for giving birth in the United States is 210 micromorts. Okay, in any given day, an average American endures easily one micromort of risk per day or one in a million chance of dying. You know, I mean, yeah, come on. (laughs) So he says, okay, so let's apply this concept to COVID-19. New York City experienced approximately 24,000 excess deaths in a period. Believe me, they've had many more than that now, from March 15th to May 9th. That is 24,000 more deaths than would have normally occurred during the same period in previous years in the absence of a pandemic. 
this statistic is considered a lot more accurate estimate of the overall mortality risk related to COVID-19. Okay? Excess deaths, 24,000 excess deaths. Now, converting this to a micromort, uh, to, well, to this language of micromortism, <laughs> a person living in New York City during that time experienced roughly 50 additional micromorts of risk per day which means you were roughly twice as likely to die in New York City as you would have been if you were serving in the armed forces in Afghanistan in its deadliest year, 2010. Simply living in New York at the peak of this epidemic put every New York citizen at twice the risk of death per day as soldiers in Afghanistan. You can do this with any state's numbers. He says Michigan had uh, 6,000 excess deaths during the same period, uh, which is roughly the same risk of dying as driving a motorcycle 44 miles a day. Well, actually, if you drive a motorcycle 44 miles, your micromort number is 11. So just saying this, because, yes, perspective. I want to keep that 210 for a pregnant woman micromort number in my head. So if it turns out that having a few people over to my house, uh, a few friends, uh you know, once we get into green, is a micromort number of 150, well, then why the hell wouldn't I? Every human being in this universe had a mother, a woman, who underwent greater risk to bring us into the world. The acceptability of risk depends, of course, on your own, your own willingness to take risks. Some of us are more risk takers than others. But here's the difference. People taking stupid risks, like not wearing masks, in this epidemic, are not just making that choice for themselves. They're making it for everybody else because their risk-taking is then shared by everyone in the community. So, while there are, this guy ends this piece this way. So while there are many thrill seekers who happily jump out of airplanes, they might think twice about forcing their frail grandmothers or their neighbors to jump with them. Okay? So I, I found that somewhat helpful. Um, and I think I'm 
pretty much done. The COVID numbers are out right on cue for Allegheny County. And I don't think that's budged in a long time. 151 deaths in Allegheny County. Confirmed cases, uh, 1,851. Okay. Um, And Barbara wants to know, am I sure about those pools being opened? Here's what I saw, uh, Barbara. I saw something, and it was a reliable source. It was about um, whether or not if we turn green, and apparently there's some sense that we're going to be, Allegheny County is going to be told by the state that we're green pretty soon, that would then lift, that, that then pools could be open. Now, what I saw was, um, I think, a reaction from County Executive uh, Rich Fitzgerald, which said he was surprised <laughs> by that, and they'd have to look into whether it was feasible. One of the big issues, even if they decide it's feasible, one of the big problems is, they don't have um, enough lifeguards because th- there was an assumption that we weren't going to open. They don't have lifeguards. Um, everything would have to be, you know, clean. There'd have to be certain protocols in place, all that kind of stuff. Um, I saw uh, a member of the city council uh, saying something like, well, maybe, but we'd have to ascertain the cost of this, you know, where, so, no, it is uh, possible. It's not like this is a done deal, but apparently that is something that the state is going to say that the swimming pools can be opened. And I don't know about you, but talking about micromorts and stuff, if I were a parent, I wouldn't let my kid into a swimming pool. I would not. But then that's me. And I and that's that's me and my comfort level, you know, or discomfort level, I guess is 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 more correct. So, well, I think that's it. Nobody called me today, <laughs> but that's okay. I um I I hope you're there. And um, I, I hope you have a, a great weekend. I know it might not be your weekend, but it's mine. And um, just stay smart, stay healthy, stay perspective, uh, to keep things in perspective. And um, and try not to be consumed by despair or anger, which is what happened to me yesterday. Okay? It does nobody, including you, any good. Okay, love you all, and talk to you Monday. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.